It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app and listen anywhere you go. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald. The, I guess... Uh, Fairly newly sworn in chief. It was about July of uh, last year or this year when she was sworn in. So it's a pleasure to have Roseanne here. She is a, a member of the Tegua Tagamu Nation. And she's a strength-based and heart-centered leader with 31 years of experience in First Nations politics. She's a third-generation chief in her family whose leadership has been groundbreaking and historical for women and youth. And she was the first woman and youngest chief elected to the Tagawa, Tagamu Nation in 1990 at 23 years of age. And she was also the first woman and youngest deputy grand chief for the Anishinaabeaski Nation, as well as the first female and youngest grand chief for the Mishkegawak Council. She served as the second term for the TTN and the second term for NAN as deputy grand chief. And so it is a pleasure to have her here on the show. Welcome, chief. Hi, thank you. Good to be here, David. And now I know you're you're very busy, and we are in uh, the midst of so many things that are going on at the moment. Uh, there's so many things that are coming up. We are in the midst of just having celebrated uh, Indigenous Veterans Day. We have uh, Veterans Day coming up. There are a lot of issues surrounding, um, of course, residential schools with uh, ground penetrating radar that that are happening around the country. We just heard about uh, Six Nations now uh, starting that process for themselves. Um, you have a lot of things on your plate, in, including uh, what's going on with uh, the as residential schools and uh, potential papal visit. I know that you uh, said that you would be glad to welcome the, uh, the, the Pope here and want him to come here to issue a, uh, an, an apology. And I know I read something about that earlier, that you didn't want uh, your yourself to go to him. You wanted them to come here. Yeah, I won't be attending the uh, Vatican visit, but the mm -hmm. Assembly of First Nations will be sending a delegation, mm -hmm. and the head of our delegation is Regional Chief Norman Yakalaya, mm -hmm. who holds the portfolio responsibility for what I call the former institutions of assimilation and genocide. Mm -hmm. I don't call them schools anymore because schools don't have... Uh, graveyards and schools should not increase the likelihood of your death. Yes, very well said. Um, so what what is it you might be expecting or do you think that the delegation is expecting to, to get out of this visit to Italy in December? Well, they're still working on the specifics around the message. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an opportunity to have a connection with the Pope, uh, the Pope himself and to uh, also formally invite him during that time to come to Canada. He has been invited by the, uh, the Council of Bishops and uh, he has accepted that uh, invitation. That's the protocol. Only they can extend that invitation to him and they have. And so at some point he will be in Canada 
And uh, so likely they'll be talking about uh, the, the apology as well as um, a number of items around the visit, uh, itinerary and those kinds of things where he needs to go when he comes to Canada. As we know, he's uh, very elderly. And so uh, it won't be that kind of, um, you know, rock and roll kind of tour where he stops everywhere. Um mm-hmm. But we're hoping that he makes some key stops while he's here. You know, something I read that I wasn't aware of um, was that there are lands that that belong to First Nations that have been that are in under the under the diocese ownership. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the exact specifics either, but that was one of our calls for reparations mm. is that these sites be turned back over to the First Nations upon which those diocese buildings and uh, properties uh, are situated. Mm. Um, now, recently, I know there was also uh, you had sent or or that the AFN had drafted something to speak to the uh, federal government around um, veterans and, and the flags and uh, how they would be flying at full or half mast along with the, the uh, Every Child Matters flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the AFN executive met this um past week and or last week I should say and we also had knowledge keepers from across Canada at that meeting and there was a lot of discussion around the flags when was the appropriate time to raise the flags and so they passed the motion and at the time of passing that motion we weren't aware of the protocols around which flag that that there's only one flag that can mm. sit atop East Peace Tower, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is the Canadian flag. And so, but in our motion, we asked that the orange uh, Every Child Matters flag be raised. And um, at the same time, if the flags, when the flags were raised, because we we requested and our solution was that the flags had to be raised on November 7th Mm -hmm. so that they could be lowered to half mast in recognition of Indigenous Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. And that actually occurred. So that was uh, historical in a way that Mm -hmm. the flags have never been lowered to half mast in honor of our Indigenous veterans. So that was really a positive uh, outcome from the discussions around the flags and that at the end of that day, they would be raised again. And I'm actually staring at the Peace Tower right now. And um, so the flag is uh, is full uh, to the top of the flagpole again, and then it will be lowered on Remembrance Day as it always has been. And so that was uh, our recommendation. And so what's more important about the flag is that the AFN executive wanted to see action, concrete actions. Mm-hmm. And so they requested that we develop a joint action plan to accelerate the TRC 94 calls to action, because as we know, only 10 of them have been fully implemented. And so we want to work with the federal government on this joint action plan to get the rest of those TRC calls to action completed. 
And so that's the action that we requested, uh, you know, because we needed a symbolic gesture Mm. to replace that symbolic gesture of lowering the flags. But we also needed some kind of action around survivors. And of course, everybody knows that the survivors uh, are responsible for the uh, the content of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, as well as those 94 calls to action. Hmm. Uh, speaking of action, um, how are you feeling these days around the federal mm-hmm. government and action around, um, for instance, um, residential schools and the ground penetrating radar and 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 looking for for bringing the children home and, and identifying identifying more unmarked graves how do you feel about the action that is being going forward on that well there was an announcement before the election of 321 million dollars mm-hmm. that would go to uh, a funding to do those searches of these former institutes and uh, they also in that funding pot committed to healing processes mm. as well, healing programs and services. And so we're looking forward to seeing what that $321 million will result in, of course. And what's important though, is that this government has committed to search all of those grounds and to provide the funding to do that. So over the next couple of years, because it will take at least a couple of years to complete these multiple projects. There are well over 130 schools still to be searched across Canada. Mm. And, uh, oh, I just call them schools. Um, there are, as I said, 130 institutes mm-hmm. to be searched. And so that's going to take time. And then obviously we're going to see if that funding is enough. And if it's not enough, uh, we'll be pressing the government to make sure that all the work is completed completed and that there are resources available, not only for the searches, but also for providing mental health support and healing programs and services for survivors and intergenerational trauma survivors as well. Right. Uh, Are you seeing a change, do you think? Do you think there has been enough of an awareness now within the country about this, uh, the residential schools, that we are into a point now where the country has accepted it and we are moving forward in in a generally good way towards getting these things resolved? What is your sense of of things? We have seen a real increase in allyship from non-Indigenous Canadians Mm -hmm. on this issue, particularly our children, um, And we're seeing a lot of empathy and a lot of response, uh, responses to our calls for action by, you know, everyday people. And so we're in a unique time where we can really begin a true healing process, uh, in this country around the, the, ongoing and past discrimination against First Nations people and Indigenous people. And I I really attribute that to the recovery of our children because we all love our children, no matter who we are. And it really has struck a chord 
across this country because we love our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews and our great-grandchildren. And those moments when we realize something tragic has happened to a child, in this case, not just one child, but thousands of children, Mm -hmm. it really has awoken Canada and made people realize that the truth of Canada and the myth of Canada, uh, the truth of Canada is that genocide happened and our children were the victims of that. And particularly the myth of Canada has been shattered, that Canada is this friendly, great place when indeed it has um, some rather difficult um, truths to face about itself. And so I've always said that It's important for us to work together on creating a new story going forward, one where First Nations are treated with dignity and respect and where we are deemed to be worthy and uh, and to be worthy of the same things that everybody else enjoys in this country, such as clean drinking water and safe housing and properly funded schools so Mm. we are definitely in a new time right now and uh you know we're all trying to figure out how to navigate that new road together i believe right you know recently with the the climate uh um, uh, cop 26 going on i've been hearing in the news about you know some of the uh uh, gathering of people that are marching and those kind of things to bring awareness not only to climate but but people are also uh saying you know they also want this they want action taken on indigenous issues and I, i thought that was really interesting that that is now combined with that because I don't think we would have heard that necessarily before. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is this awareness and, as I said, this real deep empathy and caring that um, has been brought to the forefront as a result of our children mm-hmm. and what's happened to our children. And, and, um, and I think part of it is also... Uh, not only us, but just a general awakening because of the pandemic. I mean, we're all looking at the same screens and mm-hmm. we're all, you know, uh, we're not quite back to the new normal, whatever that's going to be. But we're certainly in a different space in this pandemic where we realize that we indeed are, we share something and we're all human beings and that we're all facing this pandemic together and it certainly has created a sense of um i'm not sure what the word is not camaraderie but this sense of caring about one another that maybe might not have existed if we weren't in a pandemic and weren't uh you know Mm. at home most of the time watching the news together and being made aware of these situations right you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa this is moment of truth i'm your host david moses my guest is the assembly of first nations national chief roseanne archibald it's a pleasure to have her here on the show now, once the once the process of identifying uh, the all these institutes and what you know the, the graves and and how many children may have may be missing totally, we all know that there are 
a great many other issues that surround the residential institutes and what happened within these these places. Um, we've heard about, I certainly have heard about the uh, malnutrition, some of the experiments that went on in different ways uh, with some of the children. What do you think will be the steps following after the identification of this to uh, address uh, further with this, with these institutes? You know, the federal government, um, dating back to the inception of Canada, has spent billions of dollars trying to assimilate and therefore destroy First Nations people. Mm. And they need to invest the same amount of time, energy, and resources in rebuilding First Nations peoples in terms of investing in uh, the revitalization of our languages, the revitalization of our culture and traditions. Uh, you know, you you can't simply destroy, try and destroy a culture and then say, oops, sorry about that. Let's keep moving forward as though that didn't happen. Mm. That cannot happen. What we need to do is have those investments and this kind of mutual um, mutual kind of goal setting where First Nations ideas and their perspectives on what the solutions are for communities is taken into account rather than the government saying, well, we think you need this right. Right. Uh, when we know what we need and we need certainly federal and provincial governments to align themselves with how we are going to rebuild our communities and what their role is in that. And certainly investments in time, energy and resources and funding is absolutely key to that. And so we developed a document in my office called the Healing Path Forward Accord, which talks about a number of elements, including, for example, having more constitutional talks with First Nations, Inuit and Métis. I don't speak for them, but they would be included in those constitutional talks, certainly through their own leadership. And so that, to me, is if we're going to talk about... Uh, inherent in treaty rights, then those are constitutional talks because right now we have Section 35 of the Constitution that we're continually having to go to the Supreme Court of Canada to define. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court is continually um, ruling in favor of First Nations when it comes to land title and water rights and all of the inherent and treaty rights that we have. And so we need to get out of the court system and get to the table. And that's what constitutional talks would be about is how do we implement, honor, and recognize the inherent and treaty rights of First Nations people across this country um, and through discussions. And I think that's one of the things we talked about in the accord. And the other part of the accord is dealing with these day-to-day -day issues. How do you rebuild communities? How do you make sure everybody has clean drinking water and sufficient housing so that people, you know, aren't in houseless or homeless situations? 
how do you make sure that the quality of that housing is to the standard of everybody else? We've seen a number of communities talking about moldy housing, mm-hmm. you know, stock and how that's impacting people's mental and physical health. So, you know, and education, like the education system is the colonial education system. Mm-hmm. When are we going to start funding our education system to incorporate our connection to land and water and, you know, the traditional education we would have received, uh, you know, under our own systems and still deserve to receive that type of education that isn't just in the classroom. I mean, that's a part of the accord. And there are just different elements that we put forward. And ultimately, the accord is really about rebuilding First Nations and asking government to be a partner in that and to invest in that. As you were talking there, a number of things come to mind in light of what you were saying and how to move forward. Um, So more nation to nation. Um, I'm wondering about the Indian Act and how that plays into this and what needs to be done. Just do away with it. What replaces it? Um, and, and also, the I guess, the old school thinking that still exists uh, in Parliament, in, um, you know, the, the realms of the government around Indigenous communities uh, and, and seeing eye to eye or treating, uh, treating uh, Indigenous communities and uh, leadership on, on an equal status. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, you're touching on something that's, um, I think that those kinds of questions need to, I mean, when we're talking about rights, first of all, we have to, I can talk about them high level in terms of where we need to go. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, though, it's about rights holders, right? It's not about organizations. It's about how do we make sure that rights holders in communities are having those rights honored and recognized and implemented? Um, is that the nature of your question or did I go on a different tangent there? Um, you can continue. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the this draft document is just a draft document. Mm that I talked about and there are regions that are taking it back to look at it um, and, you know, determine what are the next steps. But at the end of the day, I think all First Nation leaders will recognize that it's the right holders who have to be the rights holders who have to be at the center of those discussions and at the center of our minds when we discuss those things. Uh, We can't discuss those things in isolation and Mm. in a political way without involving people on the ground. Mm. Right. Um, Can we talk about the the climate situation? Uh, Certainly through this pandemic, I've been doing a lot of interviews uh, around the environment. We all saw how this pause that the world took affected uh, the world in terms of uh, allowing it to breathe, to come back to life, so to speak. Uh, Animals certainly started to react differently and, and start to do differently. I, I've just did an interview recently where I uh, people were looking at different uh, the effect on, on animals, what they were doing, how birds were singing differently. There were so many things that I, I that you know came out of this, and you know some of the other things that I have been talking with people about. Every time that I do an interview, I keep thinking that 
indigenous knowledge, indigenous treatment, indigenous, uh, the way indigenous people lived light on the land uh, for millennia in harmony with Mother Earth, uh, it seems like that's where we need to get to. And I'm just wondering about um, what, what, where you see indigenous knowledge fitting into all of this as we move forward uh, as a people on this planet to to live in harmony with with this wonderful place that we have to live and not take any more advantage of it. Yeah, First Nation and indigenous knowledge is absolutely key to not only um, the health of the planet, but making sure that as humans we can survive living in a changing climate that we have indeed created global warming through our you know reliance on fossil fuels for example and um so prior to contact uh first nations lived in harmony with the earth knew how to balance that relationship how to create a sense of not only sustenance um in terms of food watch water and shelter but even to create economies and complex societies mm. and i think that's the myth that uh, has been sold to Canadians and non-Indigenous people is that somehow uh, we were only hunting and gathering societies mm-hmm. and that, you know, that we didn't have these complex governance systems in place, which we did. And, um, and so moving forward, Indigenous voices and Indigenous worldviews are absolutely essential to uh, preserving our ability to live on the planet. Like this planet without humans will survive, sure will. you know, but we cannot survive without this planet being healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think we have to really check ourselves as humanity and look to indigenous voices and knowledge keepers to understand how to uh, create that sense of balance for the planet so that, um, you know, we are living in harmony, as you said. Hmm. And and looking to the future, is there anything um, you're you have on your plate that you're looking to excitement, or you want to share that uh, we haven't touched on thus far? Uh, no, it's just been really busy since I got elected, and I'm glad I had a chance to catch up with you finally. Um, yes. And uh, it's you know, there's there's always a lot happening. Uh, for First Nations people, always multiple priorities, overlapping kinds of issues. And as the uh, the new national chief, although I'm now four months into my term, um, I'm, you know, balancing all of those things while also trying to advance my own vision of where we need to go as the mm. Assembly of First Nations. And I have to say that it's uh, been generally... Uh, a really great first hundred days and we we did a lot of work in the first hundred days and we're coming out with a report on that and just looking forward to the journey ahead and continuing to do work good work with the afn executive and with my own staff and the staff here at the afn secretariat all right chief we'll leave it there but i want to say uh miigwech for joining me on the show to uh, share this uh, time with us and to uh, share your thoughts on uh, some of these issues i wish you all the best and congratulations by the way on being uh, elected to the uh, national chief uh, for the assembly of first nations and i certainly hope that we can uh, get the time to talk again at some point in the future 
Yeah, for sure. Thank you, David. Take care. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is the National Chief for the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald. It has been a pleasure speaking with her on the show. All right, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more here on Moment of Truth right after these messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Canadian filmmaker Christine Nielsen. And she is here to talk about a new documentary, one that is dropping on CBC Gem and CBC. And it is called Nature's Big Year and recorded throughout the pandemic and it looks at what nature has been up to during the pandemic and how our effects on what happens and what we do affects animals and the world around us. So uh, Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. You know, I I did a little bit of reading uh, on you and I I thought this, this was really interesting about how you describe what is uh, and what is the most difficult sort of documentary to make? And that is, you said one that doesn't, where you can't, don't really have the images right away. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very true. And in the case of this film, mm. um, not only did we not know what our images were going to be, but we went into this story not having any idea what the scientists were going to discover. So mm. I, I really went into it with uh, with no knowledge of where it was going to go and whether the results in the end would actually even be interesting <laughs> to people. So it was a bit terrifying. <laughs> well, how soon after the pandemic struck did you think of this idea to to look at, at nature's and what was going on with animals and, and talk to other scientists about what was happening on the planet? Well, probably around the same time that it started dawning on other people that Mm. there might be something going on. So you you probably remember that there were, you know, there were stories about probably a month into lockdown uh, about (laughs) dolphins returning to the canals of Venice and uh, animals coming into the streets around the world and and those types of stories. And they were all over social media and they were, you know, they were hitting mainstream media as well. And I think I wasn't the only person who thought, you know, I wonder how much of this is true and I wonder how much of it is supported by science. So mm. that was really the that was the takeoff point. I, I just wanted to figure out how much of what we were seeing was just wishful thinking and mm. how much of it was actually reality. Okay, so you had the idea. Um, where did you go first? Where did you reach out? Who did you reach out to? And what kind of um, response did you get from them in terms of wanting to look at this throughout the pandemic? Well, we had a very small uh, research team, associate producer uh, Ben Schaub and myself. We basically, uh, once we got interest from CBC, The Nature of Things, we essentially reached out to scientists in many different disciplines simultaneously, again, hoping that if we reached out to a lot of them in everything from wildlife biology to air pollution to urban noise pollution to wolf behavior mm. in, in the bighorn bat country in Alberta, we figured if we reached out to lots of scientists that we'd have a better chance of finding people who actually were finding a way to 
take advantage of this big controlled experiment that uh, that was the pandemic lockdown. <laughs> so so we reached out to probably I would say dozens of people uh, in late April, early May of mm-hmm. 2020. Okay. And it turned out that there were scientists in pretty much all of those disciplines that were doing COVID experiments, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. and were keen to have us follow along. But again, like they didn't know what they were going to find. We didn't know what they were going to find. So <laughs> there was a risk that they weren't going to find anything that the average uh, audience would be interested in. So we were pretty relieved when the results started trickling in. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in some ways, when you see what ha- has happened with animals uh, and the results that you, you saw and the people you spoke to in different areas from around Canada and, and Britain and, and other areas, um in some ways, it wasn't really surprising, right? Because man has just all of a sudden vacated and it's it's now, hey, we can take over again. We, we have free reign here. There's nobody to, to uh, get in our way. We can roam around a little bit more. Yep. I, on, on one level, that's, that's absolutely true. But I think there were some really surprising findings. And one of them, which uh, happened in several of the disciplines we were studying, was the fact that very few scientists were prepared for how quickly mm. animals uh, <laughs> can adapt to a change in human activity. Mm. So in the case of there was a, a, a really significant study on birds that happened at the University of Manitoba. They studied 82 species of birds across North America during the pandemic and how they changed their migration patterns. They changed where they flew, where they nested uh, based on how much a community or, or a region was locked down or not. So in other words, they flocked into areas with stricter lockdowns. Um, another another study was about snow geese in mm. uh, migrating through Quebec. Mm-hmm. And they literally adapted almost overnight to changes in human behavior. So they they got they were fatter than in yep. in other years because when there's no hunting and no gunfire, they're not sort of flying around and, and using up energy. So in the cases especially of birds, a lot of the changes happened immediately, and that was really shocking to a lot of our scientists. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's it is interesting to hear those things about how quickly they did change. The one thing that that sort of stuck out to me throughout the film, though, is if we were ever in doubt about us affecting the planet or affecting the things around us. This really showed that in many different ways, just like you say, from from migration to animals being more plump because they they, they weren't uh, being threatened somehow uh, to birds singing differently. Um, and, and, you know, it's not only those things, the 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 the, uh, the presence of man, it's the absence of what we learned uh, also about sound and how that affects animals. 
Oh, absolutely. That That is one of my favorite stories in, in the show. Uh, we contacted uh, one of David Attenborough's uh, uh, colleagues, mm. a, a very renowned uh, sound man who has worked on, you know, all the big iconic uh, wildlife films, many of them with David Attenborough. And normal, his name is Chris Watson. Mm. Normally he travels the world doing uh, audio for all these big, uh, big films. But like the rest of us during lockdown, he was stuck at home in Newcastle upon Tyne in Northern England. And he noticed because he has such a keen ear, he thought that the blackbird, the resident blackbird in the cypress tree in his back garden sounded different than it had in other years. Um, He called it a more vigorous song. So he got out his audio gear, which was, of course, sitting dormant during lockdown, and he recorded the blackbird, uh, the male blackbird in his cypress tree during lockdown. And then once uh, traffic and the airport near his place opened up again, we then connected him with a, uh, a young Canadian, uh, Mia Warrington, who specializes in the analysis of birdsong. So she put Chris's audio through spectral analysis and determined that, yes, indeed, the blackbird did change his song during lockdown, probably because he could now hear his rivals in neighboring gardens. So he added this ugly little buzz to the end of his song. <laughs> like he, it, it, the, his, his uh, note became more aggressive because he could hear his rivals, maybe for the first time ever. Yes, I remember seeing that, and and it was quite interesting to uh, to see how the animals adapted. Like you say, uh, could hear further away. They probably uh, their their I guess uh, territorial area maybe expanded. You know, because they uh, they could hear further because of the uh, lack of noise pollution going on. Well, as uh, as Chris Watson said, uh, you know, it was probably in in the you know in the case of the blackbird in the cypress tree, he probably just wanted to tell those other males to you know buzz off and not try to nip into his territory to uh, to court his female. Mm-hmm. So there was some really heightened rivalry going on during lockdown in Chris's backyard. You know, the other thing I found fascinating that we don't always get to see, I guess, um, when we are watching documentaries, we got to see some of the software that was being used as well, both by uh, Chris, as you said, and and also um, the Canadian that you mentioned. And they had some, you know, they used some really interesting software to analyze what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's software that that has been designed uh, especially to uh, to analyze birdsong, uh, I believe that the uh, that the technology that Mia was using uh, mm. originally comes from Cornell University, where there's a lot of uh, there's a big ornithology department. Mm. Now she's in Britain, but she, as you say, she's Canadian. She's studying or working there. Yes, yeah, she's an adjunct professor with mm. the University of Manitoba, but her, uh, you know, her life and her uh, work has taken her to the UK. So right now she's in Oxfordshire, where she is a teacher. I would love to have her as a teacher. Um, <laughs> you know, when you see her in the show and you see her enthusiasm yeah. for communicating about birdsong, you think, yeah, I I would like her as a teacher. And I would actually, I kind of wish maybe I had studied birds. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you're, you're quite right. I was just going to say how her, how animated and enthusiastic she was uh, about this. Uh, it was almost, almost like she didn't even know the camera was there once she got into it and, and started talking uh, about it, right? Yes, and also how she uh, she sort of mimics the bird song mm. but translates it for us. <laughs> so right. part of the blackbird song that she she describes as the beginning of his song, he's saying "Hello, sweetie," and then at the back end, he's saying "Buzz off to his rivals." And the way she describes that is it's just so it's just so beautiful. I think. Yeah, and it was really interesting. And of course, we then get to go out to uh, uh, the Alberta area. And we get to see them uh, going out into the the uh, wild to uh, try to get their cameras that were placed prior to COVID, I guess, fortunately, and uh, and see what was remaining of the cameras that were triggered by activity. Um, now, I was really surprised to, to learn that, um, you know, some animals are very curious about these things there and will actually... Uh, try to take them apart, dismantle them, destroy them, those kind of things. <laughs> yes, that's and that's uh, because they, uh, the team, in order to uh, in, ensure that, that animals do cross the path, they put something, we didn't have time to show this in the show because we, we only have, you know, 45 minutes mm. and there were a lot of stories to put in there, but, but they put an ascent lure on the tree so that if the animal was choosing to go between those two trees or between the two trees where the camera is they'll go via the camera so that you can actually see mm. what animal was in that area so in some instances that scent lure really appealed to some of the carnivores so you know the bear that came in and just tore the camera apart yeah. as you saw and in other places bears kind of rubbing themselves against the tree so yeah there were there were many many images that we weren't able to use in the show because of time but it is amazing to see what happens over the course of a year when you have cameras clicking away in the forest uh, had you ever had the opportunity to work with chris chris watson previously i haven't worked with chris directly but i've i've worked with his close colleagues because uh, a few years ago i I worked on a wonderful documentary. It was a co-production with the UK here in Canada. It was hosted by David Suzuki and mm. in the UK it was hosted by David Attenborough. Mm. So I worked with many of the people that Chris regularly works with on, on an elephant show. Ah, yes. Great. Wonderful. Um, so it's interesting how the pandemic opens up these opportunities. And and I guess, you know, it, it it's interesting also what this lockdown and what this uh, pandemic has done. Every time I'm talking to people, I do find there are, you know, gems that we are learning from this whole, you know, this whole experience that we would never have learned otherwise. I think, I mean, talking to, you know, people in, in the film, but also just, you know, talking to my, my friends and colleagues, I do I do think there's a sort of a heightened understanding uh, and, and just, yeah, just a heightened knowledge of our impact on, on the natural world. It's, it's not like we didn't know that we have an impact, mm. but lockdown really, really brought it home for us. And for a lot of people, it was because of their own personal experiences. So people, you know, thought they were seeing more birds or different birds or the birds sounded differently. And now science shows that that wasn't just 
us imagining things. It wasn't us just sort of wishful thinking. Uh, it really, it really was what what we uh, mm-hmm. what we saw. I mean, we interview a family in uh, Balmoral, Manitoba, right. who, yeah, they thought they were seeing more pileated woodpeckers, more owls, more of all kinds of birds during the pandemic, and then just down the road at the University of Manitoba, they they demonstrated that in fact that was. That's exactly what was happening. Yes. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is Canadian filmmaker and documentary filmmaker, Christine Nielsen. We're talking uh, to her about a a new uh, documentary film. It is called Nature's Big Year. It is premiering on CBC Gem and CBC. And uh, I suggest you watch it. It's very interesting and fascinating to learn about what animals, birds, and uh, and how we affected uh, animals or lack of our effect on animals and, and how they changed during the lockdown. And uh, there's some really interesting stories. Uh, you've got that wonderful Christine story about the little hedgehog uh, in, in Britain. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's a, that's a, actually the research on that one is ongoing. Mm. Uh, we we met up with a, a wonderful uh, young woman, Lauren Moore. She's a wildlife biology biologist at the University of Nottingham. And she studies that. I don't know how how much people uh, in your audience know about hedgehogs because they're not you know, they're not an animal that we have in our backyards, but Mm. in the UK, they are, you know, iconic and they're the most beloved species in the UK. They're, they're listed at the top of the most beloved list pretty much every year. But what a lot of people don't realize is these gorgeous little creatures are, are a threatened species. And in some places they're threatened with extinction in, in the next two decades. So Lauren studies, there, there are lots of things that contribute to their decline, everything from, you know, pesticides to reduction of habitat to traffic. Lauren Moore uh, looks specifically at how big a role traffic plays Mm. in the decline of the hedgehog. So of course, lockdown was the perfect controlled experiment for her because, you know, there's, there was so much less traffic during that first lockdown. So she could study not only how much less roadkill there was and her citizen scientist report said there was like two thirds less roadkill in mm. her region, but it also helped her to analyze which types of roads need the most conservation effort. Uh, which roads the hedgehogs appear on the most, Mm. which ones they appear on the least. And ultimately where that will lead is it'll help them with conservation action, like possibly tunnels under the road, if they can afford it, road signs in certain places. So a lot of these lockdown studies will help with conservation action in in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that I thought was really interesting about the hedgehog is that that they are, like you say, very prevalent and they're in people's yards, uh, live around their gardens. And it didn't seem it was very difficult for her to uh, pick one up and and, and handle it. It didn't seem like it was trying to get away from her. So they they seem, I'm not going to say tame, but they seem somewhat used to people. 
Well, I think I actually I think the reality is that Lauren is very, very clever. Mm, uh, okay. <laughs> she's, she's like she specializes in, uh, you know, in, in catching uh, hedgehogs so that she can, you know, as you see in the show, that adorable shot of her mm. picking up the hedgehog and, mm-hmm. you know, rolling it around in her hands yeah. so that it unfurls. And then she can tell <laughs> if it's a male or a female. Yeah. And then she puts it on a little scale and she weighs it. I mean, she does this, you know many most nights of her life right. so she she kind of knows how to sneak up on them <laughs> for want of a better word but i will i will sort of pull back the curtain here on uh on our show and how we got those amazing shots uh she works with uh, a hedgehog uh, rescue organization and because you know this was pandemic filming and we had limited time we couldn't sort of go and spend days or weeks hoping to get pictures of sure. her catching hedgehogs so the sanctuary provided us with Bella, who was a recovering hedgehog who'd been uh, hit by a vehicle. I'm not quite uh, sure how she survived because mm, they're pretty little. Yeah. But anyway, she had recovered beautifully and they were about to release her into the wild a, a week after our mm. filming. Mm. Uh, and they they allowed us to use Bella as our <laughs> star in that particular <laughs> that particular segment. Oh, that's great. That's a nice little story we get to hear there. And then, of course, we get to see the uh, goats wandering through the streets of Wales. Yes, that was uh, that was uh, that particular uh, imagery went viral uh, Mm. in in, uh, that first lockdown Mm. in 2020. And we included it in the show because it is one of those images that uh, that people think of when they think of wild animals still coming into mm-hmm. town during lockdown. So mm-hmm. these were wild goats that live outside a, a seaside town in Wales. And it's not that they've never come into town before, sure. but they've never come in those kinds of numbers and at that time of year. Right. So that was, you know, the streets were empty as you saw in the shots mm-hmm. and the goats were hoofing it up main street yep. and they were like, you know, eating people's hedges. And it was quite, the video is hilarious. Yeah. 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 Um, and they were one of the examples of animals that really did uh, sort of take advantage of lockdown in the way that our film is describing, but not all animals, wild animals that showed up in city streets were there uh, for kind of happy, fairly benign reasons. In in the case of some of the, you know, we saw monkeys in some parts of Asia that were coming into the streets. We saw uh, deer in Japan. In the case of those animals, they were coming into the streets because suddenly all the tourists who usually feed them right. have vanished and they're looking for their next meal. Right. So. There were, which, I mean, we don't focus on that in this show because this show was more about the, you know, the the sort of positive effects in the natural world. But we did discover when we dug into some of those stories from early in the pandemic, some of them, some of them were what I just described, but others were just not true. So those dolphin images that mm. everybody was so excited about, they were from, they were from 300 kilometers away. Mm. So yeah, that, that one was a bit fake. Although apparently dolphins did show up in the third lockdown. So it wasn't entirely untrue, yep. but the, 
the images that you remember from kind of April of 2020 of the yeah. dolphins, they weren't actually in Venice. Right. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, when you mentioned that off the top of the show about the, the dolphins coming in, the other thing, of course, that we that we heard about was even the waters in Venice. People had never seen the bottom of the, <laughs> the water before prior to this, and then they could see right down to the uh, bottom uh, of uh, those canals in, in Venice and things because the water had and that was absolutely true that was absolutely true because you know with the the you know stoppage of cruise Mm -hmm. ship traffic Mm -hmm. and a slowdown in freight traffic uh yes absolutely the water the water did clear up as Mm -hmm. did uh as did skies around the world suddenly were blue in places that people hadn't seen blue skies very often in decades no and that's actually one of the big uh as you know it's one of the one of the kind of significant and really surprising revelations in our show um, is the work done by Corey Young and her team at York University. They uh, had access to data from air monitoring stations in New Delhi Mm -hmm. during lockdown. And New Delhi is the, you know, normally it's the most polluted capital city on earth. So they wanted to look at, you know, these blue skies, what did they really mean and what pollutants uh, had dropped the most and how did it affect this kind of what's called a sort of chemical soup Mm -hmm. that makes up the air of New Delhi. And what they discovered was, yep, uh, you know, as expected, uh, nitrous oxides and certain carbon compounds that make up that smog in New Delhi, they dropped uh, dramatically during lockdown. But another invisible pollutant accelerated dramatically. So there was a 30% increase in ground level ozone, which is harmful uh, to our respiratory systems. It's, you know, linked to asthma and emphysema. And what that means is that, you know, regulating air pollution in these the world's megacities isn't just a simple matter of, you know, shutting off one type of pollution, because in, in some cases, it then accelerates production of another kind of pollutant. That was very interesting. And it was also interesting because I had no idea about the harmful effects of ozone on us breathing it in and the damage it does to our lungs. I was really surprised to learn about. I think it was described as similar to getting sunburn, in, but to your lungs. Yes. And that's, you see, the, we, we tend to think of ozone as good because up in the stratosphere... Yeah. It is a good thing mm-hmm. because it protects us, you know, from harmful UV rays. Yes. But it's a completely different story when there's too much of it at ground level, which is what was happening not just in New Delhi, but uh, Cora Young's uh, colleagues around the world were discovering big increases in Wuhan, China, in Los Angeles, in Rome, in London, England. So this is uh, this is an interesting revelation that wouldn't have been discovered if it wasn't for lockdown and that could affect the way regulators, uh, you know, regulate air pollution. 
Yes, absolutely. And we're going to have to leave it there, Christine. And uh, it's been great speaking with you about this uh, this new documentary on the nature of things. It's Nature's Big Year is what it's called. It's written and directed by Christine Nielsen. It's been a pleasure uh, having her on the show to talk about this this show. So please make sure to check it out on CBC. It's also uh, being picked up uh, by PBS internationally, and it's going to be on CBC Gem as of November 12th as well. Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about this. It was a real pleasure, David. Thank you. All right. You take care. And that is Moment of Truth for today. Thank you for listening to the show. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.